your Bibles if you would. And open up with me to the book of Colossians. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians chapter 2. And let's uh, go to the Lord again for a word of prayer before we get started. Lord, we're thankful for, Lord, what a, a salve. Those songs we sang are to weary hearts this morning. Lord, thank you that you do hold your children fast. Lord, even as we, we sang the words that those you save are your delight and uh, that we're precious in your holy sight. Lord, we're reminded that the only reason any of that is true is because you see us in your son. So, Lord, we, again, just come clinging to Christ. So thankful, Lord, for the forgiveness and uh, the righteousness that you've credited to us through your son. And Lord, we ask now that you help us as we turn our attention to your word. Father, we pray that, that our ears would be open, our hearts would be pliable. We pray, God, that, that you would speak and that we would listen. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're in Colossians chapter 2. Um, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he wrote it while he was in prison, or a prisoner. He was probably under house arrest in Rome. And he's writing it to a church that he had never actually visited. Paul had never been to Colossae. He had never seen these people face to face. But he had got word on how things were going. Epaphras is the man who had planted this church. Epaphras was a friend of Paul's. And Epaphras had told Paul that the gospel had been preached in Colossae. The gospel had been received in Colossae. The, the gospel was producing fruit in Colossae. And so Paul was largely encouraged with the news he had gotten about this church. But not only was he encouraged, he was also concerned. Because Paul had got news that there was a, a new brand of false teaching that was beginning to slither its way into this valley. And this is, this is always the way it goes. Anytime the gospel starts making head, headway into an area, it won't be long before false teachers start infiltrating. Like, you go on your porch tonight and you turn the porch light on, it won't be long before bugs start to accumulate. Well, that's the way it is with the gospel. The light of the gospel has now been turned on in Colossae, and so the bugs of false teachers are going to start swarming into this area. And this particular brand of false teaching, I've told you, a good way to think about it is it's sort of the Frankenstein of false teaching. Because it, it takes uh, an arm off of Judaism and a leg off of Gnosticism and a, a foot off of paganism. And it brings all of these different philosophies and all of these different religions together and sort of sews them together into this one false teaching monster. But it didn't look like a monster. It looked very innocuous. It seemed very pleasant. What, what made this particular brand of false teaching so attractive to these people in Colossae is it promised to give them the thing they wanted. What they wanted is they wanted to grow in Christ. They were new to the faith, so they wanted, they wanted to grow deeper in their faith. They wanted to know Christ better. And these false teachers came in promising they could lead them out of the shallow end of the pool. They promised they could lead them into the real deep things of God. But what was actually happening is they were not leading them into a deeper faith. They were leading them into another faith. They were leading them into a, a false faith. And the root problem going on in this church, or, or in these false teaching, is that it undermined the sufficiency and the deity of Jesus. They were teaching a lesser Jesus. They were, they were teaching a distorted Jesus. And they were teaching these people they needed something other than Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to fortify these Christians against this false teaching. 
He's trying to prepare them for battle. And it's important that you think of the Christian life that way. Because the Christian life, in large part, is battle. It's struggle. I keep mentioning it because we just read it. But that's one of the great things that John Bunyan does with Pilgrim's Progress. It's from beginning to end, he presents it as a struggle. Christian doesn't pass through the wicked gate of salvation and then have angels carry him to the celestial city. He passes through the wicked gate and then he climbs this difficult hill. And he's constantly running into people who are trying to convince him to turn back or to take a detour. And even as enemies who are doing their best to assault him and to take him out. It is one long struggle. Lots of different dangers. In fact, there's a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. So what is it called? I know some of our parents have used it. It's called A Dangerous Journey. Well, that's a good description of the Christian life. It is a dangerous journey. It is a struggle. And so in our passage today, Paul is trying to equip them for this struggle. We're going to be in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10. And a lot of commentators would say that verses 6 and 7 are, are the theme statement of Colossians. Verses 6 and 7 sort of summarize what Paul's driving at in this letter. And so pay attention to it as we read. Again, Colossians 2, starting in verse 6, and we'll go down through verse 10. Where Paul writes, as you, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. And we're going to work through those verses under three headings. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to see the way we walk. Look at verse 6 again. Where Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now notice the therefore. As you therefore. That's, that's tying in to everything he has said in the verses before this. So remember what Paul just said in the verses before this. He's been making the point that he is laboring to see these people mature in Christ. And he's laboring for that even though there are false teachers trying to deceive them. They're, they're trying to lead them astray. But they didn't need to depart from Jesus. Why? Well, because Paul says, in Christ dwells all the fullness, or in Christ dwells all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So everything you need is in Christ. So Paul says, as you receive Christ... Walk in Christ. That's actually the very first command that Paul's given in this whole letter. The very first imperative is, as you receive Christ, walk in Christ. So what exactly is he commanding them? Well, first notice that Paul acknowledges these people in Colossae, he believes, had received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, what does that word receive mean? You sort of have to, to wipe a blank slate in your mind when it comes to how that word received is usually used in evangelicalism today. Because normally people use the word received almost as a synonym for invite. People will say, you need to receive Jesus, meaning you need to invite Jesus. You need to, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. That's not how Paul's using this word here at all. This word receive is more of a technical word that has to do with receiving a message that's been delivered. Just so you see that. Listen to how Paul uses this same word 
This is in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. Notice, Paul preached it. Paul delivered the message, and they received the message. And if you know 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on and explains what that message was. That he preached that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And Paul is saying they had received that message. That means they had embraced it. They had welcomed it. They had, they had trusted in it. And they hadn't just trusted in something. They had trusted in someone. So that Paul says, you have received. Get the phrase. You have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And every word of that is weighty. You, you can really boil this down. This is what it means to be a Christian. You have received Christ Jesus the Lord. You, you know, Jesus is, of course, his earthly name. That means these people had been taught that there was a man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who had lived in Israel, who had preached sermons, who had performed miracles. He had done the sorts of work that only God can do. He had been crucified on a Roman cross. He'd risen from the dead three days later. His followers had seen him and they had touched him and they had shared meals with him. And this Jesus had told his followers that all of that was going to happen, that he was going to be crucified and that he was going to rise from the dead. And he had told them that he wasn't going to be crucified as some poor martyr, but he was going to be crucified as a willing savior. He was going to lay his life down in the place of sinners. He was going to go to the cross as a sin bearer. For his people. They had received Jesus. But notice that other word. They had received Christ Jesus. What does Christ mean? You know, that's the that's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. They had received this Jesus as the Messiah. Now that means th this is a letter written to Gentiles. So this means that Epaphras had, had to he had, had to help these Gentiles connect the dots in all the Jewish scriptures. He had helped them understand all these Old Testament scriptures that had prophesied that a Messiah was coming. There was going to come a king in the line of David who was going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And he wasn't just going to reign over Israel. He was going to reign over the whole world. They had received Jesus as the Christ. But there's another important word in there, isn't there? They had received Christ Jesus, the Lord. They had received Jesus as the Lord. Now, there's a lot tied up in that. You, you might be familiar that what happened over time after the, the Hebrew scriptures were, were given is that there came a time in the life of Israel where they, they felt like the name that God had given in the Hebrew Bible. So God identified himself as Yahweh, right? That's the name he gave to Moses. He is the great I Am. But there came a point in Israel's history where they felt like the name Yahweh was too holy, too sacred for them to say. So when they would read the Hebrew scriptures and they would come to the name Yahweh, they wouldn't say it. What they would do instead is they would substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord. So instead of reading Yahweh, they would say Lord. And that gets carried over into the Greek translation. The, the translation of the Bible that most people in Paul's day used was the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint followed that same train of reasoning. So they translated the Hebrew word Yahweh in the Septuagint with the word kurios. That means Lord. So Yahweh is Lord. In fact, 
You notice that in your English translation problem. When you're reading through your Old Testament in your Bible and you come across the word Lord in all caps, what's that signifying? That's a translation of the name of God. That's a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. So there's been this sort of ongoing pattern that Yahweh gets interpreted or translated as Lord. Yahweh is Lord. And so when Paul now says they had received Christ Jesus the Lord, there's a huge claim that Paul's making. He, he, is, he is saying Jesus, they've received Jesus as Yahweh. They've received Jesus as God. This Jesus who was born in Nazareth or born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth and crucified in Jerusalem is none other than God. This is Paul saying in Philippians 2. That the day is going to come when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, there's, there's deity tied up in that. And of course, there, there's also lots of practical implications to saying that Christ Jesus is Lord, right? What does it mean practically for you to say Jesus is Lord? Well, it means that that's you saying Jesus is boss. Jesus is the one who gets to call the shots in my life. Jesus is master and I'm the servant. Jesus is the one who gives commands and I'm the one who obeys commands. And so this phrase Jesus is Lord really becomes the Christian confession of faith. This is the confession that lots of Christians during the Roman Empire were killed for. Because they would not say Kaiser Curios. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would only say Jesus is Lord. That becomes the Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. In fact, think of uh, Acts 16. When the Philippian jailer comes in where Paul and uh, Silas are, and he goes, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What's their answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you know Romans 10, 9, but we'll put it up anyway. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what it means to be a follower. And let me just encourage you. Don't try to hide that when you're presenting the gospel to people. Don't try to tuck that away somewhere in the fine print. That Just hide the idea of the lordship of Christ. Listen. We're clear, this Jesus who saves sinners, listen, this Jesus who saves sinners is Lord. That means he lays claim over every single aspect and every single area of our lives. And you can't have him as Savior if you won't bend to him as Lord. So don't try to hide that. He, Jesus is not just there to be our counselor, to boost self-esteem. He's not there to be co-pilot. Jesus is Lord. That is intrinsic to what it means to be a Christian. But notice how often you, you see those waters muddied. For instance, I can't tell you how many folks I've heard shared their testimony. And their testimony sounds something like this. Well, I became a Christian when I was five. That's when I invited Jesus into my heart. But I didn't really start following Jesus until I was 25. What's being communicated there is, well, I received Jesus as Savior when I was five. And then I received Jesus as Lord when I was 25. But that's not how salvation works. You can't have a divided Jesus. 
You, you can't have Jesus as Savior and reject Jesus as Lord. Being a Christian means you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And so Paul is recognizing they have received Christ. application to this in church life. So think about what's going on in church life when we accept someone into membership. So when we accept someone into membership in church life, we are, as a church family, putting our stamp of approval on this person, saying we believe this person to be a follower of Jesus. We're giving our validation mark to this person. We've heard their profession of faith, we're saying. We believe there's fruit that would show they're a genuine follower of Jesus. So we are willing to put our stamp to the world. We're willing to save the world. You can look at this person because we believe this person is a follower of Jesus. There's fruit that proves that. Well, what would that fruit be that shows that they're a follower of Jesus? Well, well, this would be a big part of it. It would mean that this is a person who is genuinely looking to pull all the loose edges of their life underneath the lordship of Jesus. Because that's what a follower of Jesus does. Now, we don't do that perfectly. Not on this side of heaven. We always have areas that poke out. And we have seasons of life where in certain parts we resist the lordship of Christ. And he says, do this. And in my heart, I want to do that. But the mark of a genuine Christian is we can't stay there. You get that, right, church? Just like you didn't, you didn't become a Christian because you believed 30 years ago and then stopped believing. You're a believer. Well, you're not a Christian because you repented 30 years ago and then stopped repenting. You're a repenter. Christians are those who ongoingly repent and ongoingly believe as we look to pull every area of our life underneath the Lordship of Jesus. So do you see, if I begin living in a way where I obviously re reject the authority of Jesus over my life, where there's an area where Jesus says, do this, and I go, no, I'm going to do this instead, and I stay there, and I refuse to turn back, do, do you see what that's saying? Well, that eventually casts a doubt over my profession of faith. And do you see what that position that then puts the church in? Because membership is us saying, we put our stamp on this person. Watch this person. We believe they show evidence of being a genuine follower of Jesus. But, but can I really say Jesus is my Lord if I am actively and in an ongoing way rejecting his lordship in my life? And this is where church discipline then comes in. Because at some point, the church body has to say, we can't put our stamp on that person anymore. We can't put our validation saying this is the sort of life that marks someone who is living as if Jesus is Lord. Because this person isn't living as if Jesus is Lord. And this is the Christian life. We're those who have embraced Christ Jesus the Lord. Okay, but Paul adds to that. So they have received Christ Jesus. But receiving Jesus isn't the end, it's the beginning. So Paul says, now, in the same way that you receive Jesus, walk in Him. So just like you receive Christ, you now walk in Christ. Okay, so go back to the question. How had they received Christ? Through faith. They had put their trust entirely in Jesus and what He had done. They were trusting in His death alone to cover their sins. They were trusting in his righteous life, 
credited to them to make them right before God. So they had put all of their eggs in that basket. And they were bending their lives underneath the authority of Jesus. That's how they received Jesus. So how were they now supposed to walk in Jesus? The exact same way. Meaning the way they continued in the Christian walk was by continuing to trust in Jesus. And continuing to bend their lives underneath the authority of Jesus. By continually to practically recognize Jesus as Lord. In other words, the way you came to the faith is the same way you continue in the faith. So humble faith isn't just how you began the journey. Humble faith is how you run the race. And so Paul elaborates on that in verse 7 with a couple of analogies to drive that point home. Paul says in verse 7, Rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now notice those first pairs. Paul says the Christians are rooted in Christ, and now we're built up in Christ. Rooted is looking to the past. So it's like they had been dead in the desert and God had uprooted them and he had replanted them in Jesus. That's their salvation. Okay, so, and by the way, rooted is, is passive voice. That means they hadn't done this to themselves. They hadn't planted themselves in Jesus. This is something God had done for them. Take this in, Christian. This is what happened in your conversion. You, you were in a spiritual wasteland. That's where your roots were. You, you were you were planted at Chernobyl. You had poison in your root system. And God plucked you out of that and he replanted you in Jesus. That's, that's conversion. You've been rooted in Christ. Okay, now, now how are you supposed to grow in Christ? How, how exactly are you supposed to be built up now that you are in Christ? And Paul's answer is by staying in the same soil. That they just needed to keep stretching their roots down deeper into Christ. Know Him more. Trust Him more deeply. Submit to Him more fully. Obey Him more pervasively. So there wasn't a different ground that they needed to move to in order to grow. And then Paul, the second pair that he uses, is he says that they would be established in the faith as you have been taught. In other words, the way they would grow was by staying in the same faith. There wasn't another Jesus. There wasn't another gospel. We never move past this. We never grow beyond this. We just sink our roots down more deeply into the same faith. And Paul says that we do it all. Notice that last phrase in verse 7. Paul says we do it all abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's what should happen. The more we sink our roots down into the soil of Jesus, the more, the more thankful we should be. Because here's what's happening. The, the more you sink your roots down into the soil, the more aware you become of who this Jesus is. The more aware you become of what it is he saved you from. The more clearly you see what salvation entails. Do you realize that? Is your understanding of your salvation the same today as it was 6, 16, 36 years ago when you were first converted? It shouldn't be. Look, 35 years ago, I understood I was saved by grace. But my understanding of what that entailed, of what all that included today, is radically more profound than it was when I first came to Christ 
35 years ago. So we, we keep sinking our roots down into this same gospel soil. And the deeper our roots sink into this soil, the more gratitude begins to abound in our lives. That's how we now walk. So the same way you receive Christ, you now walk in Christ. Here's the second thing. Number two, I want to see the danger we avoid. You might remember back uh, toward the end of chapter one, where Paul said that we proclaim Christ. And he said that as we proclaim Christ, we teach and we warn. Well, verses six and seven were the teaching. And now verse 8 is going to be the warning. Here's the warning. Look at verse 8. Paul says, beware. Now what does beware imply? Have you ever gone to visit somebody and they had a sign at their front gate that said, beware of dog? What does that mean? It means that there is a dog there that, that is an imminent threat to you. So if you open that gate or you open that door, there's a danger on the other side. So when Paul says beware, he's saying there's some sort of imminent threat. There's some danger they need to be aware of. What's the danger? Here's the danger. Beware, Paul says, lest anyone cheat you. That word cheat is a little bit tricky to translate. Maybe think of it like, like plundering, where an invading army comes in and they conquer the enemy. And then they take away all of their stuff. Or, or even they take away prisoners of war, they put them in shackles, and they march them back home. That, that's the word that Paul's using. So it's like Paul is saying, beware lest you be taken captive. There's a danger that you'll be taken captive. By what? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Paul says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world... And not according to Christ. So, so what's the danger? What's the way that we might be taken captive? Not, not with ropes and snares. With arguments. With ideas. Paul's saying the danger we face is being taken captive by philosophies. Now, the philosophy in and of itself is not a bad thing. Philosophy, phileo, it means love. Sophia means wisdom. So philosophy just means the love of wisdom. And in general, philosophy is just, just a way to make sense of the world. We're trying to ask questions. Where did I come from? What's the purpose of life? Where do we get morality from? How do we know truth? And so, so philosophy is trying to answer all of these questions to help us make sense of the world. But the problem with the philosophy Paul's describing, he knows the words that he uses. Paul says that it is according to the tradition of men. And not according to Christ. In other words, this is man's attempt to answer all of those questions without Jesus crucified and risen being at the center of it. Get this now. If you try to answer the big questions of life, who am I, where did I come from, what's the purpose, what happens at death, how do we get morality? If you try to answer those big questions of life disconnected from Jesus crucified and risen, you will always come to the wrong conclusion. You and I don't have the ability to reason our way back up to God on our own. This is part of the effects of the fall. It's called the noetic effects of the fall. And what that means is when Adam and Eve sinned, we're all affected by it. But not just we're all affected by it. Every part of our being is affected by it, including how we think. 
So we've inherited from Adam and Eve a twisted nature, and part of that is our thinking is twisted. We don't think straight. We, we don't, on our own, we don't reason right. The way uh, Van Til described it is he said, imagine a man who's getting ready to do a big construction project. And he's got all of his materials laid out. He gets his saw set up. Let's say he's got 25 sheets of plywood that he's got to run across the saw. He's got all of his sheets of plywood measured and marked exactly where the cut needs to be. He gets his saw set up. And then he turns around to mess with his boards. And what he doesn't realize is his seven-year-old son comes in behind him and starts messing with the saw. And he ends up changing the angle of the saw. So that now the saw, rather than being straight, is set at an angle. So now every board that that guy runs through that saw, what's going to happen? None of it's going to be straight. Every single cut he makes is going to be off. Even if he thinks at the beginning he has it perfectly lined up, by the time he comes to the end of that cut, it's going to be way off until the saw gets reset. Well, that's, that's the way sin nature has affected our thinking. It's like the angle of the saw is off now. So, so you might try to answer one of these big questions, and you might think you are perfectly lined up at the start, but by the time you come to a conclusion, it's going to be way off track until the saw gets reset. And the way the saw gets reset is what Paul said earlier. It is by trusting in Christ Jesus the Lord. So, so coming to know and put your faith in Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior becomes the key that unlocks the door of wisdom. It becomes the key that sets all of our thinking right. Think of Paul in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, that is foolishness. But do you remember how he ends that verse? He says, but to those who are called, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. So, so coming to see Christ crucified as the premier thing of life is what resets your thinking down the path of wisdom. Apart from that, you will never track straight with wisdom. You'll never answer those questions rightly until that's in place. So, so evaluate what you hear from the world in that. Every time you hear the world telling you what's important and what's valuable and what your priorities should be and how you should think about morality and how you should view this issue, just ask yourself the question, does their wisdom begin with Christ crucified? Does their wisdom begin with the fact we're sinners, we're broken, and the only way we can be forgiven and set right is in Jesus. And he is the Lord who, who claims authority over every single aspect of life. Is that where the world's wisdom starts? Well, of course it's not. So what that means is, the, the phrase that Paul uses, is all of that wisdom in the end will prove to be empty deceit. Why in the world would you live your life based on a wisdom that misses the most important ingredient? So they're being led astray, Paul says, through philosophy, through empty deceit. In fact, look at what Paul says about their wisdom. I'll mention one last phrase. We'll go to the next point. He describes it as coming from the basic principles of the world. Now, there's a lot of debate over what that phrase means. He could just be saying this wisdom the world has that it thinks is so high and lofty, it's really just basic. It, it's, 
It's baby talk compared to the wisdom of God. That could be his point. Or it could be translated, as some of your translations will word it, as elemental spirits. So Paul could be referring to the spiritual world, that they believe that there were different spirits at work in the different elements of the earth. And Paul could be saying that all of these worldly ideologies and worldly philosophies that dominate life, they have a demonic origin. It's not just men who are trying to take you captive. It's demonic spirits who are trying to take you captive, in other words. So there's the danger of being taken captive through these broken philosophies. They take you captive through ideas. They take you captive through warped theology. They take you captive through twisted thinking. So Paul says, beware. And then that leads to the third point. The Jesus we trust. So here's the last question. Why does the focus have to stay on Jesus? Why is it that Jesus has to be at the center for our thinking to be right? Well, here's Paul's answer. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For in him, him there is clearly Jesus, for in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That that might be the most staggering statement Paul makes in Colossians. In Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of deity bodily. And when he uses that word dwells, it's meant to make us think back to the Old Testament scriptures. Because you know how consistently in the Old Testament we get these stories of God temporarily, visibly dwelling with the people of Israel. So God visibly dwelt with them at Mount Sinai when he gave the law. And God visibly dwelt with them when the tabernacle was finished. And then later when the temple was finished. So, so that was where they would go to see God. That's where they would go to worship God. That's where they would go to know God. But Paul's saying that now God doesn't dwell with us in a temple. He dwells with us. He dwells with us in a body. And we don't just get a glimpse of God now in Jesus. Like they might hope to get a glimpse of God in the temple. They might hope to learn something small about God in the tabernacle. We don't just get a faint glimpse of God in Jesus. We see, Paul says, the fullness of God in Jesus. That means, get this now, that means there is nothing that God is that Jesus is not. The fullness of who God is, Paul says, is on display in the person of Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity. So Paul's not just saying that Jesus is godly or that Jesus is godlike. Paul is saying that Jesus is fully God. There's nothing God is that Jesus isn't. There's no, there's no aspect of deity that isn't in Jesus. So take that back to the point Paul's making. So do you see then why the focus has to stay on Jesus? Well, why did they need to reject the false teachers who were telling them they needed to move beyond Jesus if they were really going to grow closer to God? Do you see the absurdity of that? Paul's saying that doesn't work because to, to move beyond Jesus is actually to move away from God. Because Jesus is God. So if you want to know God, if you want to know God better and know God more deeply, you just stay right there in the soil of Jesus. And the emphasis here is really that, that in Jesus dwells the fullness of deity bodily. That God actually dwelt with us. The fullness of God 
was on display for us in the body, in the person. In fact, the word dwells there is in the present tense, which means he still dwells that way. Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified body. One day Jesus is going to return and we'll see him return in a glorified body. So this man, physical man, who lived and died and rose again is none other than God himself. So any teaching that presents a different Jesus or any teaching that presents a lesser Jesus, any teaching that would lead you to believe you need something more than Jesus, Paul says it is empty deceit. And then in verse 10, he says, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Let's start with the second part of that sentence. Where Paul says that Jesus is the head. Head means authority. Jesus is the authority over all principalities and powers. That means there's nothing and there's no one above Jesus. Now you got to get why Paul is saying this. I mentioned earlier, this false teaching had a thread of Gnosticism woven into it. And one of the ideas behind Gnosticism is that from God come these Different spiritual emanations. So from God, there comes a spirit being. And then from that spirit being comes another spirit being. And then from that spirit being comes another spirit being. So it's almost like there's God, and then there's this descending ladder of spirit beings. And the way you get back to God in Gnosticism is you sort of have to climb back up the ladder. You go back through this chain of one spirit being to the next spirit being to the next spirit being to the next. So in Gnosticism, they believe Jesus was one of those spirit beings. You needed Jesus to get back to God, but then you moved past Jesus. You had Jesus, and this, you sort of climbed past Jesus on your path to God. And you see how Paul's saying, there's no climbing past Jesus. He's the head of all principality and power. That there's no moving beyond him. There's no spirit that can take you closer to God because Jesus is God. And so Paul says, that first phrase of verse 10, you are complete in him. Or your translation might read, you have been filled in him. And that, that word is really the idea of being filled to the top. There, there's nothing missing. You have, you have everything you need if you are in Christ. All the strength you need is there. All the hope you need is there. All the wisdom you need is there. All the grace you need is there. All the hope, all the courage. And we can just keep multiplying words here. Everything you need, Paul's saying, is yours in Christ. So why, why in the world would we look anywhere else? Here's the way Alexander McLaren said it. It's a lengthy quote, but it's worth reading. He writes, Though all the earth were covered with helpers and lovers of my soul, as the sand by the seashore innumerable, and all the heavens were sown with faces of angels who cared for me and succored me, thick as the stars in the Milky Way, all could not do for me what I needed. Yea, though all these were gathered in one mighty and loving creature, even he were no sufficient stay for one soul of man. We want more than creature help. We need the whole fullness of the Godhead to draw from. It is all there in Christ for each of us. Whosoever will, let him draw freely. 
Why should we leave the fountain of living waters to hew out for ourselves with infinite pains, broken cisterns that can hold no water? All we need is in Christ. Brothers and sisters, all we need is in, to use Paul's phrase, all we need is in Christ Jesus the Lord. There is no better soil you can be planted in. There is no place you need to move that will help you grow closer to God. It is all there for us in Christ. So hold to Christ. Let's bow together for a word of prayer.